Warren Buffett, BlackRock, and other institutional players dominate investments in commercial aviation. Why? Because it's one of the most profitable and predictable alternative assets that exists. And it's not tied to other markets such as real estate and the stock market. Is it safe? Well, imagine triple net leases to the likes of American Airlines and British Airways. Income is contractual and guaranteed by some of the biggest named airlines in the world. That's why this kind of investment was never available to the ordinary accredited investor. That is until now. Visit accesswealthaviation.com and check it out for yourself. Invest in an institutional team with over 200 plus years of combined investment experience in the aviation sector. Conservative investing with double digit returns and tax advantages. That's accesswealthaviation.com. Accesswealthaviation.com. You are listening to the Wealth Formula Podcast with Buck Joffrey. Get ready to change your life. Welcome, everybody. This is Buck Joffrey with the Wealth Formula Podcast, starting out today as they normally do, directing your attention at an entire plethora of, of information for you to tap into in personal finance that is located at the website known as wealthformula.com. So make sure to go ahead and check that out and get free books, free downloads, all sorts of stuff. Make sure to sign up for our lists and, um, you know, get involved. The other thing uh, as, as it relates to getting involved is consider joining Wealth Formula Network. Wealth Formula Network is our inner community. It is the community in which uh, you take it to the next level in your investing journey. It starts out with a course. The course is... Uh, is taught by some of the smartest people around in this area of alternative, as they say, investing, including the likes of Ken McElroy, Tom Wilwright, uh, Real Estate Guys. We got Kevin Day in there. We got uh, Christian Allen. We got a bunch of smart people. And then after that, it doesn't stop. It's the gift that keeps on giving. It is a bi-weekly uh, mastermind call that we do on Zoom. We get to look at each other. Um, and we also have a Facebook group. Anyway, those who are part of it, who are, uh, who are part of Wealth Formula Network, I believe are getting the absolute uh, best bang from their, for their money there is possibly out there in this space in terms of masterminds. This is dirt cheap compared to everything else I've joined. So check it out, wealthformularoadmap.com. We'd love to have you join our little community. And um, as far as uh, today's show goes, so we're going to be talking a little bit about centimillionaire uh, stuff with Richard Wilson. Uh, but, you know, before we do that, uh, you know, I've been getting a lot of questions from investors lately on how to choose investments. And it's a really good question. It's sort of a nebulous uh, answer, unfortunately, because it's, it's, I mean, how do you even begin to describe the process, particularly in private placements that, you know, that these opportunities are readily available um, to accredited investors. And once you get on people's lists and stuff, you get bombarded by them. Um, so I'm going to attempt to try to address that question. And sir, first, before we begin, begin that, though, I want to be clear that there's no magic solution or process to get all of your investment picks right. In fact, if you invest long enough, something will go wrong. And it reminds me, you know, of, of a surgeon I 
a couple surgeons that I remember talking about this when I was a resident saying, if you haven't had a complication, you haven't done enough cases. Well, yeah, I found that out too. Um, and during my career and it's, you know, it, it's what it is. It's a process, right? I mean, you're going to have things that hopefully you get to a point where you win most of the time. And once in a while you have a surprise loser and that's kind of where you want to get. Um, so there's no magic to this. Um, but the next thing I'll say is that as I continue to explain my process, that none of this should be construed as investment advice because all I can do is share my experience. Because after all, it is experience um, that has, for me at least, paid off the most. I, I started looking into the private placement space in general probably about seven or eight years ago and um, uh, primarily as, an, as a passive investor. And it was something I've... Um, you know, real estate in particular was something that I knew I wanted to get involved with uh, on the passive side as well. You know, um, I knew Ken McElroy was involved. So that was a no brainer for me. And, um, you know, getting to know him over the years, that has proved to be a, a very, a very good sort of baseline uh, for me. But, you know, there's others out there. There are others out there, as you know. Um, I tend to work with a group called Western Wealth Capital a lot. Uh, that you know, Ken is is good friends with Dave, and you know that process was a, a significant one for me to get through. Um, but you know, the bottom line is that the trouble people have is because there really is no roadmap to follow when you tr- sort of take investing into your own hands. Um, that's why, by the way, my my course and everything is called your roadmap to real wealth because this stemmed out of this whole place where you're like, gosh, you know, I really like this alternative space. I like this idea of empowerment. Now what? Well, that's, you know, wealthformularoadmap.com. That's, that's where you start. So anyway, um, so where do you start when you're new at this stuff? Right. And well, unfortunately I started the wrong way in some respects because I started looking for people, uh, which was not a bad instinct, because I think that's where you want to look. You want to look for people, but where did I look? So I looked on Google, ended up finding a guy who's a bit of a charlatan in the space. Uh, He's on a lot of podcasts. He's on YouTube a lot. He gets himself on. He calls himself a hedge fund manager. Um, So that sounded like a great idea to me, given his background, to contact him. And so I spoke to him, and he was really good at making me feel like I was a smart guy and somebody he'd like to work with. So he suggested, well, hey, well, why don't you join my team? Because it sounds like you have some real estate experience on top of, you know, everything else you do. And so, you know, I thought, hey, why not? That sounds like a good idea. Um, you know, I, I'd get to participate as a limited partner, but I'd also be on the general partner side and be able to leverage some of that as well. And I thought, well, in, in the process, I'd learn something about being a fund manager because this guy says he's, you know, he's, he's a fancy hedge fund manager. He tells me that like, he told me that like three times. So anyway, I signed up. And um, so that was, you know, probably six, seven years ago. And pretty quickly thereafter, they, you know, uh, was listening to these weekly he called them, they were investor calls and you'd be basically talking to some guys in, in Austin about some development and stuff that was going on down there. But what I found in short order is what, that, that there was multiple people in that call and that, you know, as it turned out, it was almost sort of like this scheme where he'd bring on these people who he thought would be able to raise capital 
for him uh, because of their, you know, because of their friends or their community or whatever. In my case, because I was a doctor, and um, but there was a number of people on that uh, that call or in that team that had a similar background and uh, one similar background, which was that they all had a circle of friends or community that had money. So. Um, it was sort of this little scheme where he would say, I'll partner with you. You can kind of come on board and you raise money. Um, and again, I was tagged as a guy who could bring in money for doctors. Okay. So um, that in of itself is not necessarily a bad thing, right? I mean, raising capital fees and stuff or not, it's part of the, it's part of the game, right? It's part of like the reality. I mean, um, if you invest with people who are going to do work, they have to get paid. So that, that should not be a surprise. And in fact, if you yourself got in this position and you could bring people to great opportunities and get some additional benefit for yourself, well, that's great. There's nothing to be ashamed of. That's a good thing. You are solving a problem that people have and man, do they have it. Listen, that's why we're doing this podcast, these podcasts, right? Um, but in the process, you're helping others. Now, that all was great. Now, here, though, was the unfavorable part of this whole fund structure that there was. All these team meetings and all these team meetings that there was, it was always very clear that this self-proclaimed hedge fund manager had very little interest really in making uh, investors money at all. And every conversation I um, uh, attended was about fees we could charge, which ultimately he just kept for himself anyway, and the need for us uh, partners, quote unquote partners, uh, to bring in more money for him. Um, you know, and he urged me on countless times to put together a group of doctors for him to speak with and even get my dad involved who had some, you know, a little bit of money. Uh, luckily I didn't do it and I didn't do it. Uh, it was pretty clear to me that this guy was, um, a shyster and I should distance myself from him as soon as possible. So in the end, uh, the money I invested as a limited partner was lost. I resigned from the GP side, said I kept, didn't want to be part of it. Uh, for the past six or seven years, I've been receiving those limited partner distributions, which is uh, has, as I suspected at the time, been limited to $0. And meanwhile, I know that in the process of this, I know this guy, because he bragged about it so much, made a ton of money up front and really doesn't care about losing investor money in the least. And I see this guy still on podcasts and you know, YouTube and stuff like that. It drives me nuts. And those latest thing he's talking about is opportunity zones. And he's been jumping up and down the greatest thing of all time, blah, blah, blah. And it's just, gosh, gosh, just stay away, right? Um, so anyway, um, so I made a mistake here though. Well, you know, and, and what was that mistake? Well, I looked this guy up. I look for his, what is it that I look for him? Well, he was a guy who was on Google who seemed to know what he was talking about. He was a guy who made the podcast circuit and kind of used big words to make himself sound impressive. Um, he was and is a great salesman. And at the time, I made a mistake that a lot of people make, which is I mistook someone who was a great salesman for someone who is a good fiduciary for my money. Um, and you think, you might think that that is an uncommon mistake. Think again. Now think about it seriously. Because I know when people come up to me and they talk about, what have you heard about such and such? What have you heard about such and such? 
most of the time, it's because these individuals are prominent on social media or they were heard in a podcasting circle. Not, it's, I'm not saying that they're all crooked like this guy. Um, it's just that they've not really necessarily proven anything to you other than that they are good at getting your attention. Um, so if not Google and social media, where do you start? Well, let me go back to, again, my approach, which in this age of the internet and social media is a little bit archaic. It's a little bit mundane. Uh, but I start with something very simple, which is positive feedback from other people I know who've invested uh, with groups uh, who've actually had good experiences. And, uh, and then I go back and I investigate into them. So one of the, um, I mentioned one of the operators that I work with a very a, a lot is Western Wealth Capital. And the, I work with them on a regular basis. Um, they didn't find me. Uh, I didn't find them on a podcast circle. I found them through our, uh, some investors in our group that told me about their experience and the kinds of returns they were seeing over time. And that's really what got me interested in the first place. And so I was like, wow, well, that's great. I mean, that's completely unsolicited. These guys obviously have nothing to do with this business um, themselves. They're just saying, hey, have you heard about this? I'm getting great returns. These guys are amazing. I love these guys. So next, so you start with that. That's a good place to start, right? Rather than Google, rather than social media. Um, with these guys, the next thing I did was some good old-fashioned reconnaissance. So I talked to several different people on their team. I talked to several investors. I tracked the ongoing uh, sentiment of the known investors of theirs that I knew about over a year, made a trip out to walk properties with them, uh, met with them in person, looked them in the eye, which you may seem, it may seem again archaic, but I will tell you this, that um, as some of you know uh, out there, I have a pretty good instinct sometimes about, um, about, about sort of bad you know, bad players. I think I developed it a little bit since obviously being that silly guy who, who partnered with the, the initial guy first, but I've been pretty good about dodging uh, full out criminals. <laughs> but with these guys, I just had just, just this great f feeling I got. And then I got a stellar reference from uh, Ken McElroy, right? For somebody with tremendous integrity uh, who I've gotten to know and, and, and really, have a tremendous amount of respect for. And so that was kind of the extent of the social due diligence. Now, you may have not heard that term before because I kind of just, you know, I feel like I just kind of made it up. But social due diligence, what I'm talking about there is, all right, so you learned about some group somewhere and hopefully it wasn't on Facebook and hopefully it wasn't on social media or about you know some book with a, a name that suggests that you can be, you too can become a millionaire, and then um, you uh, you try to figure out what the experience of others around you who that you know and like and trust are, and then you do, and then once you get through all of that, then you've kind of completed your social due diligence. You met with the people, you've talked to them, you think that you trust them, you don't get the eebie-jeebies when you talk to them, um, and so at this point with you know, the Western Wealth guys, I felt very comfortable moving forward. And then at that point, began to look at the numbers and focused even more on that track record. Notice how the numbers really became secondary at the, in, and at the end of the process, not at the beginning. 
Because at the end of the day, I invest with people. I invest in people. I don't invest necessarily in projects because projects look great and anybody can make a project look good on paper. In fact, I can honestly say that the glossier and fancier the offering memorandum, uh, the less I will necessarily trust it right off the bat because I want to know the people and know the numbers in that order. I don't need to be impressed by fancy um, graphics, et cetera. Of course, not everyone has the time to do this kind of vetting. Uh, and that's, you know, that's why we have our group, our credit investor club, which you can sign up for an investor uh, at uh, wealthformula.com. If you are, uh, you know, if you make $200,000 a year, 300,000 uh, filing jointly, or have a net worth of a million dollars outside of your personal residence. Now, again, uh, as an aside, at the end of the day, the answer um, to the question of of how do you find good people, you know, how to find a good investment is you find good operators, you find good people. And that's why I don't work with more than a handful of them. First of all, it's exhausting to find the right ones. And when you do, what's the point of jumping all over the place? The wealthiest people in the world, you know, the most successful people get there through specialization and focus. They don't go jumping from one shiny object to the next. They see something that works. They see a track record. They just hit it over and over and over again. So that is the philosophy that I ascribe to as well. So, I mean, look at Warren Buffett. That's basically his philosophy too. Um, anyway, my guest on this week's Wealth Formula podcast can attest to what I'm saying because he's been around some of the wealthiest Americans in the country and has learned the secret sauce behind their success and the way they think. His name's Richard Wilson, and he's the founder of Family Office Club. If you want to learn to think like the rich, you've got to kind of get in their heads and, and um, you know, uh, think the way they do. Uh, and there's no one better to tell you how to do that than Richard Wilson, as he's the guy who works with a bunch of centimillionaires all the time. And when we come back, uh, we will talk to him on the show. Worried about saving too little too late for retirement? The Wealth Accelerator may be exactly what you need. With the help of some of the oldest and most reliable insurance companies in the country, Wealth Accelerator allows you to take most of the upside of any good year in the stock market and use bank loans to magnify those returns significantly. And what if the stock market has a bad year? No need to fear. Wealth Accelerator is engineered so you don't participate in the losses of the market, no matter how bad of a year it is. Sounds too good to be true, right? But it's not. It's simply the same financial engineering that the ultra-wealthy have been doing for years. Now it's your turn. Check it out for yourself by going to WealthFormulaBanking.com. Again, that's WealthFormulaBanking.com. Self-storage is a necessary evil. It's where you keep your stuff and forget about it. No wonder the stuff is so profitable and recession resistant. The Wealth Formula community, well, we've benefited from that. We've made lots of money in this space with Reliant Real Estate, one of the largest self-storage companies in the country. With an average investor internal rate of return of almost 34%, with hold times just over three and a half years, these guys know what the meaning of velocity of money is. If you're an accredited investor, make sure to check out what they're up to right now at ReliantFund4.com. Again, that's ReliantFund4.com. Welcome back to the show, everyone. Today, my guest in Wealth Formula podcast is Richard Wilson. Richard helps 100 million 
dollar plus families uh, in terms of net worth create and manage their single family houses and currently manages 14 clients, uh, including three billionaire families. He's also the CEO of a $500 million plus single family office and head of direct, direct investments for another family with over $200 million in assets. Uh, Richard is also the author of the number one best selling book in the family office industry, The Single Family Office Creating, Operating, and Managing the Investments of a Single Family Office and recently released a book called How to Start a Family Office, Blueprints for Setting Up Your Single Family Office. Richard, welcome back to Wealth Formula Podcast. Yeah, thanks for having me on here, Buck. So, um, you were on before, before, but I, I do want to kind of review some of the things because uh, it's been a while. It's been over a year, and I'm sure a lot of uh, listeners are new. How did you, just give us a little sort of uh, review on how you got into the space in the first place, right? It's a pretty unique thing to be doing. Um, and just looking at your bio, you know, your, uh, your bio included like an LLM, LLM in psychology or no, not an LLM, a, a master's degree in psychology or something like that. And I'm thinking, wow, how did you go from there to that <laughs> position? Right, right. Well, I had already been uh, working in capital markets and I took the psychology courses to try to figure out how to effectively communicate better. Yeah, to position myself better. So my classes were full of psychiatrists and psychologists. And I was the one person who was there to kind of learn the stuff to put it to use in the business world and in the investment world. And then around that same time, I found this concept of family offices was taken off. And that was in 2007. And I was in the right place at the right time. And then just put a lot of focused energy over the last 12 years and really sharing the journey. You know, every time I learned something, I'd share it online, I'd share it on stage somewhere, I'd share it on a podcast like this. And the more that I give away that, you know, different insights I get from meeting with family offices, the more that family offices reach out and they want help with something such as setting yeah. up their family office. Sure, sure. Absolutely. And, you know, so before we get sort of into the nuts and bolts of the family office itself, I'm just still curious because you're in a unique position, you know, to see where the, you know, where the wealthiest people in the world really made their money in the first place. Um, and, and I'm specifically interested in not those that necessarily have in, inherited their money over generations, but some of the people who are coming in, say, in the last decade or two, what are the most common sources of the wealth that you're seeing? Uh, a lot of times manufacturing or high-tech companies where they've had an exit. When there's a lot of M&A, then there's a lot of liquidity events. Right. So high intellectual property companies, um, manufacturing is a surprisingly high number compared to, you know, you don't hear about it in yeah. society much. You know, you don't shark tank, you don't see a lot of manufacturing companies going up there. Right. So these might be companies that have been around for 30 years. It might be seen as kind of a dirty or a niche business making zippers or little metal fasteners, et cetera. But somebody might have an exit there for $80 million, you know, in an area that, uh, you know, by society is not seen often. So I think people forget about the number of, manufacturing families out there. And then like in, in your space, I know you do a lot of work in commercial real estate. There's a good percentage of families that come from that world and they've made their money through real estate development and they're still doing so, but it's spending off enough cash and they've created such a net worth. They also need a family office around their activities. Right. Right. So it's pretty interesting that, um, you know, I, I think the idea of the sort of the boring business uh, being surprisingly profitable is um, mm -hmm. is something that I see often, right? I mean, it's not right. really the 
the sexiest stuff that necessarily becomes the most profitable. I have a friend whose um, father started out as a, um, he, he was a janitor and then built one of the largest uh, janitorial companies in the country. Wow. Is just phenomenal. Um, but yeah, and, and uh, he passed away, but uh, he'd tell people he cleaned toilets for a living. And the guy was <laughs> like, you know, well, north of 100 million, easy. Right. So, but that was what he used to tell people. Um, so um, the next question might seem a little odd, and it may be related to the first one, but also, again, you know, you have a psychology degree. And, and when, when I think about the types of people you're dealing with and the types that are here, which is, you know, a lot of really smart people, probably the kids who finished, uh, you know, at the top of their class and, you know, a lot of these centimillionaires weren't even close. What's, is there a fundamental difference in the mindset of the ultra wealthy compared to say the rest of us, you know, um, highly educated, uh, you know, working slugs who are doing fine, but, but at the end of the day, we're not anywhere near the, that level of wealth. Yeah. I do think there's a, a mindset of uh, focus and going all in on a strategy. Uh, nobody became ultra wealthy by diversifying their energy into 10 projects and diversifying their investments into 50 uncorrelated assets. You know, uh, you don't become ultra wealthy doing that. So like Warren Buffett, you know, uh, having a few eggs in your basket and watching them very carefully. That's not a recommendation for somebody's total investment portfolio, but if you want part of your portfolio to create wealth for you, you can't diversify into 200 things and expect your net worth to jump from 1 million to 20 million. Um, in my experience, it's just not likely to happen. So I think having a focus on something and also having a unique game that they're playing. So perhaps globally or in their industry or at least regionally, Perhaps they're developing a unique game to play that nobody else is playing that same game or has that same type of focus or they're keeping the score a different way or their business operates in a different way and it makes it hard for competitors to react to that. And I think that uh, many of them have kind of changed how their uh, industry works by the unique game that they invented to, to play in their space. Interesting. So let's kind of jump back into, you know, the family office idea itself. So, um, the family office is, you know, it's it, it's sort of technical terminology, right? I mean, what exactly um, is a family office, uh, and you know, what are the components that make it up? Sure, sure. Well, there's uh, there's two types, and in both cases, you're trying to create a more holistic solution for the investor, so things are managed for them as much as they want it to be. Uh, things are done more holistically. And it's not all in the brain of the individual. Most high net worth individuals, they have to remember what their CPA said, what their insurance agent recommended, recommended, what their wealth advisor said, and keep track of all this. But when you become ultra wealthy, you have way more going on, a lot more people trying to meet with you, a lot more things on your plate, maybe 50 LLCs you're involved with in some way, a lot of investments. So there's more chaos. You're more likely to drop a ball. And every dropped ball might cost you enough that you could have hired a full-time person to help you. So a $50,000 mistake here, a $300,000 overpaying taxes because you sold one week late on an asset there, lack of trust in estate planning could cost you millions. So having a holistic solution is important. And the two types of family offices, there's a single family office that if you are worth 30 to 50 million or 100 million plus, you might want to consider having a single family office in place. So it's a team dedicated just to helping you and your family alone where a multifamily office is like a more holistic wealth management firm. 
and they might have 10 or 20 or 100 clients that are all worth you know, 10 million, 20 million plus. And it's just a more holistic, long-term minded wealth management firm that's really equipped to work with the ultra wealthy because there's a different level of challenges and headaches that come with the wealth. So we certainly have, you know, uh, a few, a fair number of people I know who listen to the show are, uh, you know, over the 10 million net worth mark. Is that, mm-hmm. is that typically what you're talking about in terms of, um, is it usually, you know, liquid assets that you're talking about though, when you, when you're talking about those different levels? Liquid or becoming liquid. It could be assets that might be turned over every five to seven years because it's in a real estate asset, or it could be, um, locked within a company that you're going to sell, but maybe if you're a high income earner, you can still be taken on as a client of one of those if you're earning a million dollars plus a year, but you know that your practice might be worth five or 10 or $20 million, et cetera. You might be able to get a family office to take you on as a client, but typically, or some of the multifamily offices will have a bare minimum of 10 million liquid assets or 25 million investable assets. It just depends on the the multifamily office and what their minimums are. Right, right. And does it, uh, at what point, I guess, would it make sense for somebody? Because I, I think when you talk about, you know, somebody who's making seven figures per year, it's a million, over a million dollars per year, um, you know, has a, a net worth of five to 10 million or, or 10 million or whatever. Mm-hmm. Uh, for them, I mean, if they are high income earners and they're not necessarily business people, but they have a lot of like investments they're doing, et cetera, what is the real value to them as opposed to necessarily just having, you know, a really good, you know, CPA, a really good estate attorney? I mean, is there, is there what, I guess the question is for the lower tier of, of, of people, which I think probably some of the, um, you know, certainly I hate to call them lower tier cause they're, they're doing pretty darn well, uh, in our group. Sure, sure. But, uh, when, what's a, what's a good sort of reason to, to join, um, if you feel like, well, gosh, you know, I've got a good CPA, I've got, um, I've got a good, uh, state planning or asset protection attorney. Is there additional value that you can gain, um, you know, through a family office just by being, you know, part of, uh, a group or, or you know, this entire, uh, you know, group of uh, significant amounts of money? Yeah, for sure. There's many, many benefits of it. So if you love your CPA or if you love your estate planner, usually people only really like one of their solution providers, if any, and that's why they feel like they need to come figure out their family office solution. But let's say you like both your estate planner and your CPA, Mm -hmm. um, then the benefit would be that you can have a multifamily office helping coordinate with the CPA, with the estate planner, being a second opinion on what trust should be set up, when you're purchasing an apartment building or transacting through an independent sponsor, what capital should come from what trust to go with the estate planning that the multifamily office with the estate planner helped overlook and design. They could help you with philanthropy. They could help you with tax optimization. A lot of CPAs who are excellent, they might've done your bookkeeping for 20 years and helped you sell your practice or your business, et cetera, don't do a lot of, um, tax planning going forward. They might not help you plan for the next transaction, how to structure that. They might not plan or look at every part of your portfolio. And the issue is that a lot of CPAs and accounting firms, it's a relatively commoditized service or solution many times. So they have to have 200 clients to be successful or 400 clients as a firm. So it's very hard to get to know 
individual clients and spend a lot of time on them because a lot of them are priced to serve the mass affluent and the lower, you know, the one to $3 million net worth individuals. And with a multifamily office, they'll take the time to get to know you, your goals, your children, the second generation coming, what you plan to do and help you set up those vehicles to be tax efficient moving through this new reality that you want to live in now that you're ultra wealthy. So reduction of chaos, better management of all the moving parts, and typically the tax savings and the state planning savings alone will pay for the cost of setting up and establishing and, and paying for the family office for several years to come. So, so what are those kinds of costs? I mean, say we're, you know, again, talking about individuals in some individuals in this group may fit, you know, the description of seven figures and 10 million. Um, mm-hmm. What, what kind of costs of setup typically in ongoing fees, um, you know, would, would you, would you typically be looking at in this scenario or does it sort of depend on, you know, the, the complexity and all that? Uh, the spectrum, where you are on the spectrum depends on the complexity, but it might start, um, you know, as high as 1% or 1.25% uh, of your assets, and it could go as low as 30 to 50 basis points. If you're at the high end of net worth, then it'll get charged less um, for how much you're worth. But importantly, you know, it could be that you have a private jet, but you're not documenting the business use versus personal. and You could get dinged on that pretty hard during an audit that will almost inevitably come. It could be that the estate planning has not been done right or updated as laws changed. So you might lose millions of dollars right. um, if there's a death in the family, et cetera. And um, many times individuals are using retail uh, custody and retail wealth management solutions, and they're paying double, triple what they should be on their, their custodian accounts and their trading and their investment management work, et cetera. Is there advantages to people within these uh, family offices in investment opportunities? For example, or do you tend to get better terms than the typical mom and pop accredited investor if you're looking at a private placement? Um, some people set up a family office and they still don't negotiate hard on terms or think too creatively. But if you are doing direct investments, you should look for a multifamily office that's really specialized in helping you do that. And most multifamily offices are not equipped to do that. It's a really small minority. And that's something I think is going to change in the industry, but it's one of my, you know, biggest complaints about it right at this point. And um, at, at our firm at, at Centimillionaire Advisors, we find that family offices who are most successful in setting up their direct investment programs look at their portfolio in three compartments. They look at their defensive compartment, which is traditional wealth management, high diversification, getting into uncorrelated assets, et cetera, and it's just plain pure defense and your arm's length away. And an advisor is doing that for you typically. Then we find that through using independent sponsors, maybe a real estate fund manager, maybe direct to a couple properties, but usually through an independent sponsor, you have the second compartment of cash flowing commercial real estate where it's hard asset, it's tangible, usually local or semi-local, and in one or two asset classes you're comfortable with, like self-storage and multifamily or data centers and multifamily, et cetera. And the third compartment is usually direct investments into operating businesses where it's where you created your wealth in manufacturing zippers or in, you know, uh, cosmetic surgery, et cetera. And that's where you play the most offense and you have the most control. You're not relying upon sponsors. You're not having a wealth advisor do that for you. You're investing in cosmetic uh, surgeon, you know, practices or in technology or IP related to it. So when you separate things into those three buckets, 
it allows you to look at yourself, your goals, your risk preferences, your time horizon, and look at potential people that you're going to add to your family office team or potential multifamily offices and say, is this group equipped to help me? And if they are, in which bucket are they going to be helping? Are they just the defensive portion? Now I need to go and find and figure out my cash flowing commercial real estate portion, et cetera. Right. So, you know, you're, you're, uh, it's interesting that what, what you say about those buckets, because, you know, when you hear buckets from typical financial advisors, they're, those buckets are full of different things. Uh, <laughs> like, you know, a doctor or lawyer, six-figure, mid-six-figure person or whatever, going to portfolio manager, uh, the first thing they tell them is, well, we need a diversified portfolio of stocks, bonds, and mutual funds. Uh, which of course is never going to make you ultra wealthy, right? Um, what can a person learn uh, from the way sent to millionaires invest their money? Yeah, so I think that um, many times people hear that their whole lives, anything related to wealth is about diversification. Just play it safe, ultimate defensive strategy, and that's what everyone beats the drum on in the whole industry. And I think with direct investments, it can be diversification. You know, if you're investing in data centers, mobile home parks, self-storage, and multifamily and office parks, and you're doing that in Singapore, San Diego, Brazil, and Mexico, or even five different cities in the U.S., you're in so many asset classes and so many geographies, there's no way to be an expert or even know the base facts about what's going on. Even if you manage $3 billion, you're not going to be excellent at doing those things. So there's a place in a portfolio to play defense. There's a place to have a moderate approach and a place to play offense. But with direct investments, if you looked at 50 stem cell investments or 50 surgical centers or 50 self-storage properties, by the 50th one, you're going to be able to tell a good apple from a bad apple on a relative sense. Even if you didn't know anything about the space before, hopefully you, you do or you have someone advising you, but just that focus will allow you to make better direct investments, get better deal flow. People will know what deal flow to send you. You'll know what's normal, what's typical, what looks more credible than usual, what's better priced than usual. And you'll find specialist service providers to help you get a third-party valuation or manage a property or manage a business, et cetera. You lose all of that when you try to diversify your direct investments, especially uh, in an extreme way. So I think that sent to millionaires and family offices in general when it comes to direct investments, they need to choose one or two types of commercial real estate, constrict geography um, to the degree that makes sense for the risk level that's appropriate for them, and then look at the direct investments they're doing in operating businesses and be focused there as well and not diversify direct investments too much or you lose all the learning curves that gives you any sort of advantage in the marketplace. How much how much do you see actually invested within publicly traded markets um, for these uh, sent to millionaires. I mean, are, are people also, I mean, do they, do they buy, you know, ETFs? I mean, do they, do they do that kind of thing or is that kind of just very pedestrian, um, for them? Sure. So, uh, a lot of private banks and multifamily offices they hire will buy ETFs for them. Most of them aren't trading those internally themselves, but I had breakfast with a $300 million family a few weeks ago. And because they created their wealth in the public markets, they're all about that and they control that internally. They're the exception. If you made your money in commodities or uh, running a hedge fund, then of course you're, you know, the stranger family office who keeps that all in house and has their own thoughts about how to do that. That's your backyard. But the average family office is outsourcing that part. And honestly, they uh, almost always should be outsourcing that and only doing the things internally they're excellent at. So the takeaway for someone listening to this perhaps then is also 
if your whole career you've been a dentist and managing a chain of dental clinics, or if you're running a business of some type and then you sell it, you know, unless your huge passion is now stem cells or now the stock market or ETFs, probably should leave that to a best in class expert. Look at your DNA, your background, where there's opportunities, where there's momentum, where your passion is, what you're naturally excellent at, and combine those things and find the crossover so that your energy is invested where you get the most power per hour out of that instead of doing your own bookkeeping, instead of figuring out your own estate planning, which would be, which would be crazy to try to do, et cetera. You should focus on what your unique abilities and what your strengths are and pour your energy into that. Um, out of curiosity, um, you know, I, I have been uh, somewhat interested uh, in, in the world of uh, digital currencies and been sort of following the movement on, uh, you know, institutional involvement, family offices, there's some pension funds involved now, believe it or not. Mm-hmm. Are there, is there, uh, are you seeing any family office interest in things like digital currencies like Bitcoin? Yeah, for sure. I mean, both both in Bitcoin and just uh, blockchain in general, I think there's an interest. I think some families don't know what to make of it, but they put it in that bucket of maybe a couple percent of their assets and they say, well, you know, it's either going to go from X to zero or it's going to go up 50 times or 100 times long term as countries' currencies keep failing every seven years on average. And and they start adopting the use of, you know, using Bitcoin via their mobile phone or some other crypto uh, asset, et cetera. So I think some of them take a little bit of a flyer on it because the upside is much, much higher than the potential downside. But a lot of them, if they didn't make their money in technology or they didn't make their money in some related space related to high tech IP, uh, a lot of them don't understand it enough to make like a a big investment uh, into the space I found. But there's a, I think what seems to be interesting to people about this space that even don't know about is they understand there is a, um, there is a, a significant asymmetric risk profile, which as you mm-hmm. said, you know, one or 2% goes in. Okay. If, if you don't understand it and you think there's a possibility this goes to zero, this doesn't hurt you as much as it potentially could help if it, you know, goes a thousand X. Right. 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 If it becomes true mainstream. I know there was a five years, seven years ago, you were strange if you even talked about it and then it got up to a thousand dollars per coin and then 5,000, it jumped up to 20,000 and everyone felt like, Oh my gosh, it went mainstream and now it's too expensive. And uh, obviously with the Bitcoin price, at least it's, it's come back down a little bit, but long-term, if it truly became globally kind of a mainstream global currency, then, you know, that that's the scenario that people are putting a little bit of money in to prepare for. Yeah, I can imagine, especially when you've got the likes of, you know, Fidelity and some of these mm-hmm. other companies that are coming along, getting involved, that that's probably getting people more interested. Well, tell us about your, um, tell us about your podcast and, you know, why you started it. Who is it for? What value? I mean, is there value for people who are, uh, you know, I guess uh, maybe not sent to millionaires in there as sure. well? Sure, sure. Yeah, it's just called uh, the Family Office Podcast. And every Thursday, we're releasing some conference content because we host 25 events per year. And we'll put a discussion panel on commercial real estate or a discussion panel on uh, how to raise capital from family offices or a discussion panel on how to set up a family office, et cetera. And we'll have five experts on stage at our events talking about it. And we'll rip the audio from that and put it out on the podcast every Thursday. And then on Mondays, I talk about what my clients are looking for, what's happening internally. It's just a one or two minute update on the Family Office Club and Centimillionaire Advisors. 
and just talking about what our clients are seeking investment mandate wise. And then we'll put other little insight videos out there. So I think anyone who's looking at putting together their own family office solution or thinking they might want to engage with a multifamily office and figure out how they should navigate the space would benefit from uh, potentially listening to that. And it's because of feedback from the podcast and the events that we just recently released uh, this new book called uh, Centimillionaire Migraines. And I'm reminded of it by your question because the podcast, as I'm sure you've found, has been a great way to get people to reach out cold to you. Sure. And it's through all of the connections from the events, the podcasts, the books, et cetera, they've been able to see that almost all of the ultra wealthy, really starting at 30 to 50 million, there's no word for 30 millionaire. Otherwise, we would have called it 30 millionaire migraines. Right. But it's called centimillionaire migraines because at that level, it's inevitable that you have these headaches. But they really start at you know, 25, 30 million. And the same six headaches just keep coming up again and again with our clients. And a couple of them, you know, they don't cost any money to solve. They're really just um, approaches like mental awareness, intentionality that need to be integrated into what you're doing. Absolutely. Um, so where else can we learn about what your work, uh, get a hold of you if appropriate, et cetera? And we'll put it in the show notes as well, but why don't you let sure. us know. Sure. There's just uh, three quick places in, in 30 seconds I could rattle off. If you're just getting introduced to the family office industry and you want to learn more, we have our event schedule, our membership, a free book on family offices, all at familyoffices.com. If you're listening to this because you're raising capital and you're trying to figure out the family office industry for that purpose, we have capitalraising.com and we've got an 80-page book you can download there in PDF format that gives my five-step system for raising capital away for free. Um, and then the last resource is if you're ultra wealthy, you've had a liquidity event or you're a high seven figure per year income earner and you want to figure out a family office solution for yourself, then our latest book in a whole data room of free resources uh, can be downloaded for free at centamillionaires.com. Again, we will put those in the show notes as well. Uh, Richard, thanks so much for being on Wealth Formula Podcast again. Awesome. Thanks for having me here, Buck. Appreciate it. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the show, everyone. Hopefully you enjoy that. Richard is always a gracious guest and it's always fun to have him on. Uh, I do want to point out we're going to have an upcoming uh, Ask Buck show, so make sure to go to wealthformula.com. Uh, leave me a voicemail question there or a comment, whatever you want. Um, make it a good one um, and leave as much or as little information about yourself as possible. Uh, or as, not as possible, but as much as you want me to reveal about you because uh, we'll just play whatever you record. Um, would love for you to get involved again with wealthformula.com and just go to the leave a voicemail, leave Buck a voicemail tab there. Uh, also, I want to urge uh, those of you uh, to consider joining Wealth Formula Network again. I do think it's a great place for people who want to take it to the next level and have a community of like-minded thinkers. Check that out at wealthformularoadmap.com. Finally, when you go to wealthformula.com, make sure to give us a five-star review because we need these reviews. We need subscriptions, et cetera, to keep our higher ranking so that we have a continued flow of really quality guests like Richard Wilson. Anyway, that's it for me this week. This is Buck Joffrey with Wealth Formula Podcast signing off. Thank you for listening to the Wealth Formula Podcast. Visit us on the web at wealthformula.com. The information contained in this podcast are opinions, not fact. As always, Consult your own financial team before making any investment. See you next time. 
Buck Joffrey here from Sapio with Buck Joffrey. Aging might become reversible over the next 10 to 20 years. It's already being done in lab animals, so it's just a matter of time. Our challenge? To be healthy enough for when that time comes. As a former scientist and surgeon myself, my goal is to figure out how to do that and to share it with you. I wrote a book called Living Longer for Busy People that you can download for free at sapiopodcast.com. You'll be amazed at just how a few daily adjustments can add years of a healthy life for you. Again, download it for free, sapiopodcast.com.